All right, look at you all sitting back down all by yourselves. Ben, sit down, Ben. <laughs> Thank you as you come back to your seats. It's a, a wonderful time every time we have baptisms and can hear what the Lord has done in the lives of his people here. And I know I tell all the ones who are interested in baptism that, yes, you're going to be nervous. It's going to be a little bit scary. I said, but you're also going to really, really bless all of the Christians out here who have been Christians for decades and decades and decades and seeing that God is still doing his work in, of salvation. So we're really excited uh, to be here for that. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai. If you are uh, needing a Bible, there's some black Bibles in the seats in front of you, and uh, Haggai might be a little tough to find, so I looked it up. It's page 791 on one of these Bibles, okay, one of the few Bibles at 791. Book of Haggai, towards the end of the Old Testament, right after Zephaniah, right before Zechariah. So if you're in a Z, you're close. And while you look for Haggai chapter 2, let me point out to you that you have one of these in your worship folder. And uh, I'd like to invite you to grab it if you haven't looked at it already. Um, Depending on how boring I am in the next few minutes, you might be looking at this more anyway. But I figured I would explain some of it. We're going to Israel. Um, in November, and by we I mean you, coming with us. How many of you have gone to Israel on one of our previous two tours? Can you raise your hand? Now look around, look at the hands up. This is important. If you're thinking about going, or you might maybe want to go, or maybe next time, raise your hands again if you've been before. Go talk to one of these people and ask them about the hotels and the food and the hikes and the flight and all of those things, and they will uh, they will love to share with you the time that they had in Israel. But we are going this November. Um, You've got some great pictures on the front. Um, I believe we're going to all those places. Um, Capernaum and Caesarea and the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem and Qumran. Uh, On the back, there is our itinerary and the details, including the pricing um, and the refunds and how all that stuff works. But uh, let me just tell you that the two times that we have taken tours, we have had not just a great time hiking and learning and opening our Bibles on Bible sites. But we have had a great time together, um, sitting on the bus, getting to know, sitting on an airplane for a long time, getting to know each other. Um, And we'd like to ask you, even if you're not planning on going this time with us, we'd like to invite you to share on social media or share with your friends and family. If anyone you know might want to go to Israel, we'd love to have them come with us. Um, Every time that we've gone, we've taken people from... Um, other churches and family members and those kinds of things. So we would love to have you join us as we open the Bible um, in as many places as we can where the events that we're reading actually took place. And so we'd love to have you come join us. Um, Some people say the Bible comes alive in Israel. It's already alive. It doesn't need to come alive. It's God's word. But it is an amazing thing to have logged in your memory for the rest of your life the places that you've read about. So we'd encourage you to think about joining us this November. We're also going to have an information meeting in the coming weeks. We'll get some more information about that. Okay, Haggai chapter 2. Here we are in a short book, one of the minor prophets. Pastor AJ started us last week in Haggai chapter 1. And so we're going to finish this short book today uh, in between um, some of our longer series. And uh, I'm excited to get into this text Maybe a a book that's slightly uh, on the more unpopular side as far as books of the Bible. Maybe you don't have a a verse from Haggai uh, memorized. 
Uh, but uh, all of God's word is breathed out by him and it is useful for our lives. And so we want to, to dive in this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read all of Haggai chapter 2 and then we're going to pray. And then I'm going to do this in half an hour. If you're visiting with us, those were sarcastic chuckles. <laughs> Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. However familiar or unfamiliar it is to us, it is your word given graciously and freely to us. So let us not squander 
this time. I pray that you would be with my mouth and that you would be with the ears and the hearts of all of us, that we might receive your word, that we might accept it in rebuke, in encouragement, and that we might go from this place encouraged to follow your word, however hard it might be. We pray, Lord, that you would be with those who were baptized this morning, that they would feel uh, your presence, that they would remember um, your salvation, and that they would go from this place emboldened, courageous to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have added on to your house ever? Anybody done an add-on, an addition? Anybody done some major work inside of your house? Anybody paid someone to do major work inside of your house? Yes. How many of you have a project that you thought was going to get done, oh, like two decades ago? Anybody, anybody like that? <laughs> there are some hands, including some 30-year-olds. That's interesting because two decades. Okay, I'm not good at, good at math. All right. In this passage, we find in what's going on in Israel at the time that this is written, we find a project that has been delayed for about 18 years. A, a, a community project, a work day kind of thing, maybe a work year kind of thing, that has been put on hold. And Pastor Aja talked to us about this last week with the temple of the Lord needing to be rebuilt. Just as a review, when we're reading the book of Haggai, we are in the year 520 B.C., 520 B.C., 66 years before this, the temple of God was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The temple was thrown down. Everything was set on fire. People were destroyed, killed, maimed, exiled. It was disaster for the children of Israel. In 538, some of the Jews returned from Babylon and Persia to come back to the land. And what they found was ruin. What they found was devastation. They found poverty. They found some of their kindred, their brothers, their sisters, struggling to get by. And so this is where we find ourselves. As the children of Israel had returned, they had begun with great joy to get started on the project. They built an altar so they could offer the sacrifices that God required. And they started what they thought would be a work project, and then they stopped. You can read about this in the book of Ezra, earlier on in the scripture. The first six chapters, I believe, are about this time period. And we see that there is outside opposition against the building project, and there is also internal fear and disobedience. And so the Temple Mount where Solomon's great temple stood for hundreds of years, where the worship of God took place, is now rubble. And so, at the end of chapter 1, we saw that the work began again. The people heard the word of Haggai, the prophet, and they responded. Pastor AJ mentioned one of the only times in Scripture where a prophet speaks and the people actually do what the prophet says. So this is a good thing. We want to latch on to that. But even so, as chapter 2 begins, it seems like there has been some discouragement. And so this is where we want to go. In the first nine verses, we're going to see that God's past works give God's people confidence to do his work in the present. So God's past works give God's people confidence to do his work in the present. 
we have a lot of dates given to us in the book of Haggai, which may seem really, I don't know what to do with these things, but if you have a study Bible, it will help you understand what is meant by in verse 1 of chapter 2, the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. Uh, We find out that uh, 440 years prior to this, to the day, the the Solomon's temple had been dedicated and consecrated in front of a vast crowd of Israelites. And God's presence visibly in a cloud came down and went into the temple. So much so that the, the priests who were inside had to run out because the presence of God had descended upon the temple. And now it is 440 years later and Haggai speaks to the people. And in specifically, he speaks to the only two real characters we have outside the prophet himself. That's Zerubbabel, which is a great name, right? Zerubbabel. It's great. Okay? It really, really helps you kind of get your lips moving in the morning. Just say Zerubbabel over and over. And then we have Joshua, who is the high priest. Zerubbabel could have been king. He is the grandson of the last king of Israel, of Judah, before the deportation, before the exile. Had the Babylonians not conquered Israel, Zerubbabel would have become the king. But now he is the governor. A little demotion. Um, He is still there. He is leading the people, and the high priest is there. So as much as there is devastation and discouragement, at least God has, in his grace, allowed those lines to stay alive. They have lived when so many of their fathers and grandfathers had been slaughtered and exiled. When Haggai comes to speak, he speaks to specifically the leaders and then also the remnant of the people that is there. And that word remnant should ring through our ears as we read this book. The word remnant speaks of disaster. The word remnant itself speaks of not an optimal situation. If you only have a remnant, you only have a fraction of who you should have. And so the remnant of the people are there, and they listen to Haggai. He speaks to them in verse 3, and he asks what may be a rhetorical question, or perhaps a question for the very oldest of those present. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And this house refers to Solomon's temple, the house of the Lord. And it was a magnificent building. I believe, Jeremiah, I've got a picture in there. Um, In the top corner, you can see the the comparison to a a football field. Um, That's the the footprint of Solomon's temple. And um, there's gold everywhere. There's beautiful architecture. It took seven years for King Solomon to... Uh, complete this building. And it was an amazing building on top of a mountain in Jerusalem. If you go with us to Israel in November, you'll see where it stood. Um, And you can see, usually at different times of the day, we have reports of this, that when the sun was coming and glinting off the gold, that you could see the temple from miles and miles and miles away. It represented the presence of God, the dwelling place of God among his people, where his people would come to worship him daily with sacrifices, at least three times a year for various festivals and feasts. This is the center of, of Jewish life. This is what it used to look like before Nebuchadnezzar tore it down and set it on fire. 
So when Haggai asks about this, he is opening a scab. And perhaps some of the oldest people that were there may have been alive and remember the temple, but it's 66 years since it was destroyed. So they would have had to have been at least young children with good memories when that occurred and had to escape the sword and exile and disease. And so perhaps there were some among them who were there. In fact, if you look at Ezra 3.12, you'll see that 18 years before when they thought they were going to get this project started, they laid the foundation. They kind of cleared the rubble, found what was, what was usable, and started to lay the foundation for the temple. And when they did, the young people were ecstatic. There was thunderous applause and praising of God. But the Bible tells us that it was mixed with the elderly weeping loudly because of how puny this thing looked. You see that the older people remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And now they had cleared the rubble and had merely a foundation. And so the young people who had heard about the glory of the temple were excited because here it's coming back. And the elderly people saw what was going to go up and were grieved. So Haggai plays off of that and basically gets them to admit this isn't that big a deal, right? As far as architecture goes, as far as what it looks like, this is not really looking that good. This is just a fraction of what it used to be. You'd have to go and hear from the older people or read from the scrolls to hear the actual majesty of the previous temple. And you might say, Haggai, what are you doing? Thank you, sir, for depressing us all here as we're trying to rebuild the temple. Yes, this is a pretty lousy version of the temple. Thank you. And yet in verse 4, we see that Haggai is a realist. Haggai is trying to get the people to understand something deeper than just the building project. The building project was important. God was in it. God was behind it. And yet, There was something missing. And so in verse 4, Haggai tells Zerubbabel specifically first, and then Joshua the high priest, and then the rest of the people, three times he says, be strong, be strong, be strong. Same word that was used from the Lord talking to Joshua after Moses had died, and Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 is about to lead this people into the promised land, and he's scared. He's got to follow up Moses. And the Lord says, be strong and courageous. Be strong, be strong. And that same word is used here with another Joshua and Zerubbabel and the people. The Lord is saying through his prophet, be strong anyway. They had fallen into a trap, some of them. Ecclesiastes 7.10 tells us what the trap is. Solomon says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Solomon told us not to look back on the golden days, the golden years. Oh, if things were like they were once. Solomon said, that's stupid. Don't do that. Because those days are gone. Fond memories are fine. But here we are living in the here and now. And what Haggai is telling them is, actually, the former days probably were better. But you have a great God. Why? Look at verse, the end of verse 4. After saying, be strong, be strong, be strong. He then gives a command, work, for I am with you. Now, that last half of that phrase changes things, right? (laughs) If Haggai comes out and is like, yeah, this place isn't that great, looks pretty 
Pretty junky compared to the old temple, huh? Okay, get to work. Thanks. All right. Well, yay. Let's go. Let's get to work. Instead, he reminds them, he tells them, God is with you, so work. And that should make all the difference. For Christians, this is important for us to remember because God is now not only with us, but even greater, God is with us by being in us. Since Pentecost, since the New Covenant, since Jesus' death and resurrection, followers of God now have the incredible blessing and benefit of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. A blessing the Old Testament saints did not know of and could only look forward to. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is with us because God is in us. And just as Haggai told the people of Israel in 520 BC, I tell us today, get to work. Get to work. God is with us. It's the beginning of 2020. Get to work. And I mean, like, go to work. Like, you should go to your job and work. But I also mean that you should get back to work on things you've let fall through the cracks in your family, at work, here at Village Bible Church, or ministries that you are a part of outside of the church. Get to work, Christian, because God is with you. He continues to tell them, work because God is with you. And verse 5, the reason that God is with them is because he made a covenant years ago when they had come out of Egypt. 900 years before, when the children of Israel had escaped Egypt, God had made a covenant. And what God is saying is, that covenant I made 900 years ago, I'm still keeping it. Can you imagine 900 year faithfulness? (laughs) That's a long time. A long time of faithfulness to a rebellious, idolatrous, ungrateful people. And yet God, in his mercy, has been faithful ever since. And then he repeats himself, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. That word that comes from angels and God to humans so often in the Bible, fear not, don't be afraid. And the the reason here again is God's presence. One of the commentators I was reading says, the personal presence of the Lord gives courage, determination, and the conviction that he will not permit his cause to fail. Remember, Our mission is not our mission. Our mission is God's mission. And so God will not allow his mission to fail. Now, he will do it over generations. So you and I, should the Lord not come back, when you and I are in the grave, God will still be working his mission through his people. And so we are here now. What are we going to do? We should work. We should fear not. And then the Lord gives his people a future glimpse of what's going to happen. So he says, I've been faithful to you in the past. I'm with you now. And I'm going to take care of things in the future. He says to the people in verse 6, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. When you hear sea and dry land and you know your Bible, you should think, crossing the Red Sea. The sea and the dry land. God is, is triggering their, their, their religious memory, their cultural memory of when God had 
uh, parted the seas and the children of Israel had gone across. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house. Remember, there is no house. <laughs> There's just the foundation and a bunch of rubble. And so God is asking them to, to, to think, to see this house will be built. God will give them the power to build it. And in this house, the latter glory, verse 9, shall be greater than the former. Now that's impressive. Because Solomon's temple was a jewel. Solomon's temple was an amazing building. And yet what the Lord is saying is, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, I think that's what God does in a lot of our lives because things don't look that great a lot of times, right? I'm going to do something really big. With, with what? With, with me? I'm a bunch of rubble. What can you do with me? You know, I think that when we think about that kind of thing, we sometimes don't connect with characters in the Bible because we kind of put them on too high of a pedestal. Um, or, or maybe you haven't um, read your Bible enough and you just kind of remember vague stories from your childhood of these great men and women of the faith. If you go back and read, there are no great men and women of the faith. There's a great God empowering those men and women of faith. There's a bunch of dirty laundry in those people's lives. A lot of skeletons in people's closets. Just like are in our lives and in our closets. And yet God can use us and God tells us, get to work. I am with you. Lastly, at the end of verse 9, look at, look at the promise. Here's the promise. And in this place, I will give what? Peace. Now, um, if you go this in November, you'll go to this place. And if we get on the Temple Mount, which is not guaranteed, we will have to go through uh, a check. And we'll have to go through x-ray machines. And we'll have to be very careful what we say and don't say on top of the Temple Mount. Why? Because there's no peace. There's no peace in that place. Or is there? What's interesting is Haggai is also a, a man who's good with words, and he's actually rhyming in, in, um, in Hebrew. I, I kind of want to feel like he's doing a little spoken word or a little rap in this place, but he says that in this place, makom, I shall give peace, shalom. In the makom, I will give shalom, peace. In fact, the word Jerusalem probably means something like city of peace. Jerusalem, shalem, shalom. See, not that far apart. What's going on? God is promising peace. In this place, I will give peace. And when, if we get to stand on that Temple Mount and we look three quarters of a mile to the west, there is a dome covering a place called Calvary where peace was purchased once and for all. And it is everlasting peace. And though we only get tastes of it here and now, it is the peace that passes all understanding and will come. It will come because the Lord has said it and he will keep his word. In verses 10 through 19, we see that obedience and repentance bring blessing. Obedience and repentance bring blessing. Stop. Before anybody misquotes me or takes this out of context, Blessing is not defined by you and I. Okay? Think about your life. Have you ever thought you received a blessing and it turned out to be a curse? <laughs> have you ever misidentified a blessing? Or have you received a blessing you had no idea was coming? What's important to note is that 
Yes, obedience and repentance bring blessing. Obedience and repentance brought blessing for the thief on the cross, but he still died. He was hanging on a cross. He did not get off when Jesus said, son, you'll be with me in paradise. He continued to labor and then the Roman guards broke his leg so that he would die. Did he receive blessing? Absolutely. Because he was with Jesus in paradise hours later. However, we are not always the best people to figure out what is blessing and what is not. And we also are pretty impatient people because I'd rather have the blessing now than have to wait, like Abraham, 25 years. Some of you aren't 25 years old, so you literally can't imagine waiting for something for that long. I can hardly remember. I mean, I don't think I've waited for anything that long, but that's a long time. That's why Abraham is the example of faith for us, because he he understood that God said he would bless him, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited in faith. So when I say obedience and repentance bring blessing, I do not pretend to know how the blessing looks. And by the way, does God ever bring blessing in your life through difficulty? I mean, we could stay here for hours and hours and tell how God has done that in our lives, right? In fact, often that's how God does it. The greatest blessing in the world is salvation and it required our Savior to die on a cross. So there's spiritual and physical blessings. There's temporal and eternal blessings. And because we're running out of time, I can't go as far as I'd like to here. But what happens is Haggai basically two months later, that's what happens in verse 10. We're now two months later. Haggai basically gives a a lesson from the Jewish law. And what the lesson boils down to is this. He says, yes, you're, you're getting to work. Yes, you've done a good job. But just showing up And just doing the rituals doesn't get you close to God. It is about your heart and how clean your heart is. And essentially what he does is he brings up two hypothetical situations. And his his proof is that uncleanness is contagious in a way that blessing is not in a way that holiness doesn't get transferred just by doing something. You don't become holy because you walked in the doors of a church this morning. I mean, I've picked the gum off the seats in this place. It's not that holy of a place. (laughs) There's stains on the floor. So, So what are we talking about here? We're talking about not just showing up, not just doing things that make us holy, but doing things that come out of a heart that longs to be holy as God is holy so that our behavior follows our heart. It doesn't get you on God's good side just to show up this morning, especially if you fell asleep. Just kidding. Walking in these doors doesn't make you holy. Standing up here with a microphone on my face doesn't make me holy. In fact, it brings greater judgment if I'm not careful. And so what Haggai is trying to get the people to see is, listen, You are unclean because of the way you're acting in disobedience. And disobedience always starts in our hearts. And the people of God had turned from him and they were not obeying him fully. They had not given him supremacy in their lives. And Haggai says, listen, you want to know why your crops aren't doing well? You want to know why your vines don't have very many grapes on them? 
Do you want to know why the pomegranates aren't doing very good or the olives? All of these things that were necessary for the Israelites to survive and to make it. He said, they're like that because I did it. I sent hail and drought. (laughs) Here's the point. I sent it so you would look to me. Look to me. Did you control the hail? Did you control the drought? No, because if you did, you wouldn't have let it come. I sent it. Now listen, God's not Zeus up in the sky being a meanie with lightning bolts. <laughs> okay? God, God has no, no pleasure in that. God has great pleasure in the obedience of his people when they stop doing futile things and look to him for strength. So God will, he will discipline you and me. He will. Not because he's a jerk. Which, for some of us parents, at our best, at our best times, that's why we discipline our kids, right? At our best. Many times we miss the mark, right? But at our best, we want them, we love them, and so we will discipline them so they will not be stuck in their sin and their stupidity. And the same with God, except he's perfect and knows exactly what he's doing. And look look at the very end of verse 19. All of these horrible things have happened, but look at this word from God. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Notice he doesn't say they earned it. Hey, good job, guys. Gold sticker. Blessings. You earned it. He says, you guys are, (laughs) this is kind of a pathetic place to be and you're kind of a pathetic people. But guess what? I promised that I would love you and provide for you. You're my covenant people. I will never let you go. I will bless you. Second time that day, the Lord speaks to Haggai again. What a day for Haggai. I mean, we think of the prophets oftentimes as like direct pipeline to God. I don't think that's how it worked. And this day, the Lord spoke to Haggai twice. That sounds awesome and probably exhausting. The word of the Lord came a second time. And what does God say? God basically communicates that he's faithful to his promise to bless and to judge. Listen, if God were only faithful in his promise to bless and not to judge, he wouldn't be a good God. Because then he would allow things to go unpunished. He would allow things to go that he just ignored. God is holy and he cannot do that. So God is faithful to his promise to bless and to judge. This seems to be a bit bit more of a private revelation. The first one is shared with the people. This one seems to be shared with Zerubbabel alone. And remember, Zerubbabel is... Uh, a descendant of King David. He's in the line of David. He should be king if they had a kingdom. In fact, if you turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 1 and you scan that list of names you probably skip over in your Bible reading, you'll see a man named Zerubbabel. Halfway between a man named Abraham and a baby named Jesus. Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus He's the governor of Judah. And Haggai tells him, the Lord has a word for you and it is an encouraging word. And if we're honest, it is a confusing word. Because it does not seem like this prophecy came true. Which, if God makes a prophecy and doesn't come true, we're in a load of trouble. If God is who he claims to be. A faithful, covenant-keeping God. And it also is an abrupt ending. As you get to the end of Haggai, it's like da-da-da-da, oh, oh, the end. There it is. Okay. I was expecting a two-hour movie, and it was 20 minutes. All right. It's just an abrupt ending. And 
I just want to point out one thing, and then we will need to end. Zerubbabel, by the way, is a Babylonian name. Um, Zerubbabel was probably born in Babylon. He probably had never seen the temple. Here he is with a Babylonian name. He's a descendant of David. He has an incredible work to be done of rebuilding the temple. And God gives him these remarkable visions and pictures of the future in which he overthrows the throne of kingdoms. He's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations or the Gentiles. He's going to overthrow the chariots and their riders, which would again remind us of the Red Sea coming back down on Egypt and the army and their chariots. He's going to once again do what he had done before. Verse 23, on that day, which is a phrase that prophets use over and over and over again. On that day, on that day, on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, on that day, judgment day, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. That was what God had called David. That's what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. Son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is an incredible statement because of what God had told Jeremiah a a few hundred years, not even a hundred years before. Jeremiah had spoken to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah, king of Judah. And he basically said in Jeremiah 22, 24 to 25, even if you were a signet ring on my hand, I'd still throw you away. Whoa, that's harsh. Jeconiah had totally turned his back on the Lord and the Lord said, you know what? Even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, the signet ring, do we have a picture of a signet ring? Yeah, there's an example of a signet ring. A signet ring was used by an authority and the king is the highest authority. And the signet ring, as we learned in Esther, uh, not Haman, Haman was given the signet ring of King Ahasuerus who took it off his finger and gave it to Haman to stamp the orders to kill the Jews. So the signet ring is the sign of the kingdom. It shows that the seal of the document is from the king, from the highest one. It it is the signifies, uh, it signifies the king. And there is no higher king than the Lord. And he said, if you were the signet ring on my right hand, Coniah, I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And that's what happened. So when Zerubbabel hears from the Lord, you're like a signet ring. It is like the Lord is saying, I disciplined your grandfather, but I'm not done with you yet. You are the signet ring. It's like God took the signet ring and chucked it. And now he's gone back and he's got the signet ring. He's cleaned it off and he's put it back on his finger and he will provide for his people. Now, the the problem here is that this is the end of the book and Zerubbabel dies in the book of Ezra. So what's going on here? Well, probably what's happening is that Zerubbabel, because he is a descendant of David, stands in, he's a type of, of David, who is a, like a prophecy for what is to come. That God will send his Davidic king someday. That's why Matthew chapter 1 is so important, because when Matthew traces the line of Jesus back to David, we are proving that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. He is the signet ring 
of God the Father. And Zerubbabel gets to, gets to symbolize, for all of time in Scripture, the coming of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So don't forget that God is faithful to promise, to bless, to judge, and he will be faithful. He will be faithful. And the message of Haggai is that we must put God first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of sitting under your word, of hearing testimonies of those who were baptized, of singing to you this morning. And now we get to go to our classes and learn more about who you are with our brothers and our sisters. We thank you for the blessing that you have poured out on Village Bible Church. Lord, we thank you for how you are faithful. Now, Lord, we need your help. We need your strength. You are here among us. You are with us. So help us to be faithful to you. We look forward to blessings. Lord, we ask for some temporal blessings, some physical blessings here and now. And we thank you for this campus, which is a blessing. We thank you for how you have provided for our church. Lord, we thank you for the generosity of this church to support so many missionaries going around the world. Lord, we thank you for what you have given to us. Now, Lord, help us in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, to know that our labor is not in vain, so that we should be steadfast and immovable, because you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.